Today's passage is from Mark 14, verses 27 to 52. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come, look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus when they seized him. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Let's take a moment and pray. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come and meet us here in this moment. We ask, Lord, that whatever I say would be of you. We ask, Lord, that you would look into our hearts. Show us, Father, where you're calling us to costly discipleship. And make it clear to us that Jesus is always worth the cost. Amen. Well, about a year into the unlawful Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we have reports of the Russian army committing countless war crimes. These include the shelling of civilian areas, repeated and horrific sexual crimes, numerous executions, and the forced deportation of Ukrainian children into so-called Russian re-education camps. Well, rightfully so, our concern and support ought to center on the Ukrainian people who are suffering greatly under Putin. 
And knowing these great evils, it seems straightforward to say that a Russian Christian shouldn't serve in the Russian army, which is, of course, an easier thing to say than it is to do. And even as we speak, it's likely that somewhere in Russia, a young man, while others willingly or resentfully go to the front lines, is being held prisoner for refusing to join an unjust war. Think of this man as someone raised in an evangelical church, someone whose parents tried to stress to him the importance of his life matching up with his beliefs, someone who is devoted to prayer and reading his Bible and trying to love his neighbor, someone who may have gone to holiday club camps or weekends away. And right now, the reality in Russia is that anyone who refuses to go to the front lines will likely be held in the dark and starved until they sign papers to join the war. And for those who continue to hold out, they face 10 further years of imprisonment. And so we might say that they face a similar kind of suffering that Christ himself endured. Well, looking at the Gospel of Mark in our passage today, we have in verses 14, 27 through 51, as likely the record of a sermon or the words of encouragement and admonishment that Mark had heard the Apostle Peter deliver on numerous occasions. Peter probably preached this as an act of evangelism to folks who are not yet Christians, but also delivered it in more intimate settings to Christians who were facing persecution in the early years after the resurrection of Jesus, as it was after the resurrection that Peter had been tasked by Jesus to go and preach the gospel to all nations. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Mark wrote down the sermons and memories of Peter that were all based on Peter's time following Jesus before Jesus again returned to heaven and left his disciples to carry on his mission. And so we can picture that Mark, who was an apprentice of Peter, would have followed Peter to a number of houses in Rome where Christians were gathered. And these men and women would be anxiously awaiting the arrival of Peter because they were faced with costly discipleship, or the mental, physical, and social costs or hardships associated with a lifetime of following Jesus Christ. And some cases of costly discipleship were brought about by the Roman government, but others were more informal. We might refer to them as societal or peer pressure. It may have been that they would lose their businesses and be financially ruined if they continued to follow Jesus, or they would lose an important job in the government, or be disowned by their families, or be denied a promotion, or be branded a traitor or intolerant for their theological and moral beliefs. And during the time when Mark would have been writing down his gospel, numerous Christians were even facing the prospect of death at the hands of the emperor Nero. And later on, some would be set on fire by the emperor for lighting at his garden parties, while others were fed to animals. So imagine Christians facing all sorts of difficult circumstances some 2,000 years ago, some, of course, far more scary than others. And you could also imagine a young man huddled scared and alone in the dark today for refusing to inflict pain on the people of Ukraine, for standing alone when so many others are joining in into evil. And imagine them all, all of them eagerly awaiting the arrival of Peter. What might he say to them? What might he have to say to us here today? As we will see, he will say, choose Jesus. Whatever the cost might be, Jesus is worth it. Follow him and identify with him in his suffering and in his obedience. Well, there are numerous promises from Jesus in the Gospels that his followers will indeed face times of costly discipleship ranging from being mocked or maligned or losing a job, all the way up the scale to physical and mental suffering, and as we've seen, even death. This is the result, we are told again, of a lifetime of faithfully following Jesus. And knowing that we, like Peter, are prone to run away and protect ourselves, 
How are we to approach these times of trial and testing? How are we able to find the spiritual resources to choose Jesus and identify with him in his suffering and in his obedience? Well, here's more what I think Peter would have said when he arrived at the homes of Christians across Rome who were faced with instances of costly discipleship. He might say, before I tell you what to do, let me first tell you a story. And so let's do the same. Let's first hear Peter's story, preserved for us by Mark, guided by the Holy Spirit, and then hear what might have been Peter's application to those Christians in Rome and to us today. And Peter's story, we should note, is one of his own failure, which is contrasted with the perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Coming to our passage, it takes place after Jesus had spoken to the disciples about his upcoming sacrifice and work in bringing about the kingdom of God. And they have left uh, where they were having dinner together and now arrived at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And we read in verses 27 through 31, and Jesus said to them, I'm reading off that ESV, and I think the Pew Bibles are NIV, so there might be a slight discrepancy here. Jesus said to them, you will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So here you can imagine Peter telling the Christians Rome that he made an arrogant and ultimately empty promise to Jesus. Jesus predicted his own suffering, that he would willingly endure the judgment of God on behalf of all of humanity for our collective sin, and that in the middle of all this, his closest friends, his disciples, would all abandon him. But Peter thought he knew better than Jesus and apparently thought very little of his fellow disciples. Peter promised he would continue to follow Jesus in the face of costly discipleship, but Jesus was having none of it. Jesus told Peter that he would repeatedly reject him before the night was over. But undeterred, Peter again promised to be faithful in the face of costly discipleship. Well, how do you think Peter's audience would have received this? Huddled together by a fire, with Peter recounting his arrogance of how he was convinced he would remain faithful in the midst of costly discipleship, and how he now, reflecting with regret, even thought he knew better than Jesus Christ. Well, going on in verses 32 through 42, we read, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away, to, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came at the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. So again, Peter continues his story, and he says, Jesus asked me to support him as he prayed on the most trying and difficult night of his entire life. What did I do? I'm ashamed that I kept falling asleep. God in the flesh asked me to sit and suffer with him, but I napped instead. 
I was tired from the long day, from the emotional intensity of it all, and so despite my promise to follow Jesus and to his humble death, I couldn't even imagine, I couldn't even manage to stay awake with him. Well, going on, Peter might have said, here's what I heard Jesus pray about, anticipating that he would suffer in the worst way a human has ever suffered before, experiencing separation from the Father and bearing his judgment against the sins of all of humanity. Being alone as his friends slept around him, he prayed for a way out, any other option, but ultimately he aligned with the will or the desire and plan of the Father. He prayed not his will, but the will of the Father be done. And then Jesus came back and again, he asked for comfort, but I kept failing him. At this point, I didn't even know what to say to him. So finally, Jesus, without the support of myself and his other friends, facing suffering and human sin and death, saw that Judas and other officials had come to arrest him, and so he got up and he walked to go face them. Well, taking a pause, we can think, how might Peter have felt as he was relaying these words to the Christians in Rome? There must have been some embarrassment and some sense of shame, but also immense love and admiration for Jesus. We can see from Peter's story that Jesus, and not himself, is the main character in this story. Jesus is the one to be embraced as our Savior, but also as our example. Well, in verses 43 through 46, we read, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Jesus came. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he, ki- he went up to him and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. So Peter sees a crowd led by the tr- betrayer Judas coming to arrest Jesus And here we see that he actually gets pumped up on adrenaline. He's a bit embarrassed probably because he kept falling asleep. And so now he's going to prove his courage to Jesus. And we were told in verse 47 that he cut off the ear of a servant. So we see that Peter was ready to die as a hero in battle. But what would become clear to the Christians in Rome is that Peter wasn't ready to suffer yet with Jesus, to follow him into his humiliation and to his isolation. He was open to a quick death and some blaze of glory, but not to the path Jesus chose, as Jesus was not that kind of Messiah. So we go on and we read in verses 48 through 51, and Jesus said to them, being Judas and those who had arrested him, have you come out as, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, and that man got loose, and he ran away, essentially naked. Well, here Peter would recall to the Christians in Rome, huddled together, afraid, fearing what the emperor might do to them, that every follower of Jesus that was with him that night fled from Jesus, that they all abandoned him. They failed in the face of costly discipleship. And that last person in verse 51 is a stand-in for all of us, a person who ran away essentially naked. We all would have done the same thing. It was Jesus alone who was faithful. Jesus who suffered and went on to die for all people in our place, for those who arrested him, but also for the disciples who fled from him. So we can imagine now that Peter has finished his story, the story of his failure and a story of Christ's faithfulness, the story of how Jesus chose to follow the will of the Father, how Jesus is a model of costly discipleship, how Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament from Isaiah 53 and the book of Zechariah, how Jesus alone bore the suffering and punishment that we all deserved, 
from the foot of the Mount of Olives all the way to the cross. Peter, again, is recounting this story, but as we've seen, it's Jesus who is the main character. But we should also notice that Peter did recall the faithful promise of Jesus, as verse 28 reads, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee was where Peter was first called to be a disciple at the beginning of Mark's gospel, and in Galilee, Jesus would regather his disciples after the resurrection, and he restored Peter and once again assigned him to go and to share his gospel with all nations. So that is why Peter would be speaking to the frightened Christians in Rome who are now faced with their own instances of costly discipleship. It's because he had been told by Jesus to do just that. He was not there under his own authority or based on his own work or good works or efforts or his successes. He was based, he was there based on the authority and power of Jesus Christ. So now that we can imagine that Peter would come to the application of his story, again, a story of his failure and a story of Christ's own faithfulness, a story about choosing Jesus in the face of costly discipleship. What might he have said to those Christians 2,000 years ago? To those facing isolation, a loss of a job, physical suffering, or even death? He would say, I think, that Jesus is first our Savior, but he's also our example. Jesus chose the will of the Father and so saved us from our sin, but his act of submission also serves as a model to us for how to live our own lives when we face instances of costly discipleship. So to the Russian Christians, he would say, come what may, choose Jesus. Even over your very life and freedom, emulate Jesus, follow Jesus, choose Jesus. What might he be saying to us here today? How would he tell us to find the spiritual resources to face up to costly discipleship in our own lives? I want to take a minute to think about this, and especially in light of the prayer of Jesus, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And as we've seen for Peter, the question of costly discipleship certainly was not an abstract one. Not only had he failed Jesus completely in this regard prior to Jesus' death, but he also repeatedly found himself called by Jesus after his resurrection to identify with Jesus in his suffering. We are told in the book of Acts that Peter was beaten and imprisoned for preaching the gospel, And church tradition holds that Peter was actually crucified upside down by the emperor Nero. What's a good question to ask, what changed for Peter? In part, he was recommissioned on the other side of the resurrection. He came to see that Jesus conquered sin and death, and so come what may in this life, he had a secure and beautiful eternity with Jesus guaranteed to him. He also came to see that Jesus calls people to costly discipleship in order to accomplish his purposes in our lives and for the entire world. That's in part how we come to know and love and serve Jesus Christ better, and how others come to see Jesus as one worth following. It's often, we are told, how the gospel of Jesus is spread. Notice again in verses 35 through 36 in our chapter, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The suffering that Jesus faced was in line with the Father to bring about his redemptive purposes or his plan of salvation for all of us. Well, on top of that, I would also say that Peter came to realize, guided by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was deserving and worthy of our obedience. Listen to how Peter responds after being accosted and threatened for proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 4. He's just been told not to talk about Jesus 
And here's his response to those officials. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and about what we have heard. Peter experienced and knew that Jesus was good and loving and powerful and wise. He knew he was worth following and that knowing him, that being loved by Jesus, identifying with him, was of greater value than anything in this world. He came to be amazed and captivated by Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Mark 14. We see a gracious and loving Jesus, a savior who's certainly worth following, one abandoned by his friends who didn't abandon in return, but chose to walk alone into suffering and death and separation from the Father for our own salvation. So Peter might have said to the Christians in Rome who were scared, gathered together, didn't even know if they might die in the coming weeks, he would say, Jesus is a God worth following. Who else, when abandoned by his friends, would die willingly for them? Who else would suffer in such a way on behalf of others? Who else is so loving and so good? Who else is so wise and powerful, yet so humble? Who else would forgive and restore somebody like me? So come what may, choose Jesus, emulate Jesus, follow Jesus. Well, similarly, when faced with his own impending death for following Jesus, an early Christian named Polycarp was given the choice to renounce Jesus Christ and therefore spare himself from dying. Well, he responded this way, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, this is the report of many Christians that times of costly discipleship have led them to greater intimacy and greater closeness with Jesus Christ. And we might think about it this way. Recently, a friend of mine nearly froze to death. He was walking out with his dog in the western part of the United States and suddenly a massive snowstorm came in. He got lost and for five hours he trudged through two meters of snow. Eventually he got so tired and so confused that he sat down because he thought the right thing to do was to take a nap. And if it had been 30 minutes longer, he would have died. And he was actually just saved by his dog lying on top of him. And it was an amazing miracle that his wife on skis rode in, saw the tracks and came and saved her husband. And she was a doctor and able to keep him alive until the paramedics came. But when he was found, his body temperature was about 29 degrees and the doctors say that he very nearly lost both of his hands. Well, he told me last week when I was talking to him that certainly he wasn't thankful for that entire ordeal, but what he could be thankful for was about what the pain in his hands had taught him. He, he reflected at length on how he had come to better understand the pain Jesus endured when his hands were pierced for us on the cross, and how he was thankful for such a savior who would die so willingly and suffer so willingly on our behalf. Well, taking a pause, we have seen that Jesus is our Savior and our example, and that we find the spiritual resources to follow his example into costly discipleship, partly by meditating on his work as our Savior. And all, uh, all that he is and all that he has done needs to provide a kind of earthquake-proof foundation for our souls as we sit and meditate and wonder, what kind of Savior is this who would die in such a way for me? But again, coming towards the end of the day, we should note that in line with the purposes of Peter and under the perfect guidance of the Holy Spirit, Mark wrote down his gospel because he wanted this story of Jesus to be remembered. He wanted Christians in Rome to know that even in the face of death, faithfulness to Jesus was always the right choice. Similarly, the Holy Spirit guided Mark because he wanted us to know the same today, that costly discipleship is always worth the cost, though of course that doesn't make it easy or simple or mean that we face it without fear 
or without some kind of trembling. I think it's important to know that some of us here might have suffered greatly for Jesus, both in body and mind, but also in time lost. You know what it's like to pray, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And you know what it's like to confess, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And to you, I'm hesitant to say anything because of the respect that I have for you, but there are numerous passages from the Old Testament, and our passage today, I think, also affirms that your suffering was not pointless, that Jesus knows and understands firsthand what you went through, and again, that your choice to identify with him and his suffering was not fruitless, that it helped to accomplish the purposes of God, and that it brought glory to Jesus, and that you have a sure place in heaven, and that Christ identifies with you and you with him. Well, looking elsewhere, we might also ask, what does costly discipleship look like in England or across Europe or in my homeland of North America? Well, I imagine it'll look differently for many of us, but we need to first pause and reflect on where we might be tempted to stumble when faced with times of costly discipleship. None of us sets out to fail. Rarely are our stumbles intentional, but often we fail nonetheless. And interestingly, in the case of Peter following the resurrection, he was quite ready to suffer and die for Jesus when it came to standing up to certain government officials. But we have another account in Galatians where Peter again failed in the face of costly discipleship, this time after the resurrection of Jesus and after his return to heaven. In Galatians, we are told that Peter, even though he knew better, gave into peer pressure by some influential misguided Christian leaders, and so he chose not to eat or associate with persons who were not Jewish. And according to the Apostle Paul, Peter, wanting to please the set of powerful people, compromised the truth of the gospel by implying that good works are necessary for salvation. And worse yet, we are told that Peter, as a leader, led many others astray. So here we have Peter willing to die before government officials, but because he so badly wanted the acceptance and approval of another group of powerful Christians, he failed in the face of costly discipleship. So we have again a picture of Peter that matches verses 50 through 52. And they all left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. And this story from Galatians would seem to me to be a very good lesson for all of us today. C.S. Lewis wrote that all of us long to be part of an inner ring, a group of people who are in the know or who have power, a place that we feel like we belong and are special, but especially where others are excluded. But the trick is that this inner ring may be different for all of us, and this very well may cause us to fail when we are faced with instances of costly discipleship. Well, a few examples come to mind. In the United States recently, videos were released of the administrators of a hospital promoting so-called gender-affirming or transition surgeries, with some being performed on teenagers as young as the age of 16. These were promoted partly on the grounds of being a moneymaker for the hospital, and the higher-ups indicated that they would not tolerate any kind of religious dissent or pushback. Well, suppose you found yourself as a Christian with some position of power within this hospital. What are you to do? Maybe you want to be accepted into the inner ring of your colleagues. The temptation might be to say nothing or to convince yourself that it's not, not your cause to take up. But it's often in the places where we have power and influence that we are called to willingly offer it up to Jesus, to trust him with the outcome, to die for ourselves exactly for the good of others. And if we don't do so, we're passing on hardship and responsibility to the very people under us who we are called to care for and who we are called to protect. 
So what might it look like in this instance to seek to live out the prayer, not my will, Jesus, but your will be done? And if you would like myself or Andrew Turnbull or many others would be very happy to talk to you more about such issues. And anyone who is here today struggling with what is sometimes referred to as gender dysphoria, I want you to know you are most welcomed here. And if you'd like to learn more about what we believe God's design is for gender, sex, and marriage, our rector Vaughn has written extensively on these topics. We'll look into other examples of costly discipleship. I also think of people in ministry positions who might be called to hold to account abusive leaders. Maybe the inner ring we want to be a part of is some group or society or collection of pastors. But there we might also find people guilty of verbal or physical or sexual abuse against others. It could be that Jesus is calling us to costly discipleship by revealing and challenging these abuses precisely where we thought we might find mentorship and camaraderie. Or perhaps on a smaller scale, we have a group of Christians we hang out with and we often fall into gossip with them or some other kind of sin. Well, maybe the cost of discipleship is to repent to these friends and challenge both what you and they have been participating in, even though, of course, you might be called a hypocrite or misunderstood in some significant ways. You then, like Jesus in our passage, might find yourself failed by your friends and feeling alone and completely isolated. We could also imagine in the near future where a coworker might think of you as extreme or a zealot for attending St. Ebb's. And this is especially true in light of the ongoing disputes over the definition of marriage within the Church of England. It's possible a coworker might equate Ebbs with homophobia and the very worst kinds of religion. What might you say? Might you be tempted to quietly leave Ebbs and hope, and hope that nobody notices? Or might Jesus be calling you to a very real form of costly discipleship? Well, of course, I'm not suggesting that we go around looking for fights or that it's always wise to speak up about every belief you have in every single circumstance. What I want to suggest instead is that we will all face times of costly discipleship at different moments in our Christian journeys. These are times where we know God, based exactly on where he has placed us, is calling us to stay faithful to him. Not to attack or strike out like Peter did against a servant by cutting off his ear, but to willingly and clearly and self-sacrificially embrace the face of, truths of our faith in the face of mockery, and scorn and ridicule. And we should do so with meekness, which means to humbly trust the outcome of, this, of these times of costly discipleship over to Jesus Christ. Well, if we have failed in the past, it's good to know that there is indeed forgiveness available. And maybe God is calling us to go back and rectify this failure in some way. Maybe we're called to admit, regardless of the embarrassment, that we have failed and to go back and to make it right. And if we are currently or soon will face costly discipleship, the words from Peter, written by Mark and preserved by the Holy Spirit, are that Jesus is indeed worth it. He is not aloof to our suffering. He has instead suffered exactly in our place. And so like Jesus, we should pour out our hearts to God. We should ask if there's another way. We should indeed make sure that costly discipleship is really what Jesus is calling us to at this moment in time. We should talk with friends, we should talk with pastors, we should pray and fast together. And like Jesus, if you know you are being called to costly discipleship, we, could, we should seek out friends for support, even if it might very well be that these friends would abandon us and we'll find ourselves alone and we'll find ourselves isolated. But ultimately, we should know that Jesus is worth it. Choose Jesus. And if you would like, we want to invite you after our last song to come up, and I'm happy to pray with you. I know Annabelle or Andy is. 
we'd invite you to come to the front. And if you're facing a time, a decision about costly discipleship, let us pray over you. Let us work through these things together. Let's seek the wisdom of the fellow saints. See if indeed Jesus is calling you to something costly and then find the spiritual resources together to face up to these costs. And if that's not something you think you need tonight, we completely understand. But I would also challenge you to take 30 minutes this week, sit alone with Mark 14, go by yourself into a room, and pray and ask the Holy Spirit, are you calling me to costly discipleship? Is there something in my life I've been overlooking? Is there some path I've been taking that's the easy one? And is there something deep and hard and true that you're calling me to? So I thought we could close now with the words of Peter from the book of 1 Peter, and then we'll take a moment together before we sing to meditate, and Andrew will come up. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Let's sit with these words for a moment together.